My name is Nico van Dijk and welcome to this BJSM podcast. Today we welcome Dr. Rod Widely for the first time ever to BJSM podcast. Rod's a clinical researcher and interested in how practitioners can understand statistics better and integrate that into their daily practice. In this podcast, Rod and I talk about how we can understand risk, in particular percentages and odds. And no, they're not the same thing. Rod, we, we often measure risk factors or calculate odds, uh, ratios of getting injured. So what's the difference between percentages, odds, odds ratios? Well, they're all essentially different ways of saying the same thing, but it turns out percentages for most people are easy to understand. But if you want to try and figure out what your percentage risks are, then you have to use odds to get there. And that's where a little bit of confusion creeps in. So if we think about football and um, we take hamstring injuries and ACLs, ACL ruptures, we see both often, but figuring out how to predict them becomes difficult. Yeah, those are two good examples. And so ones where we can look to literature and get some data and use some examples for that. So if we take, say, um, the nasty injury, an ACL injury, which is going to involve lots of time off and all the rest of it, uh, from Tim Hewitt's landmark paper where he had uh, something in the order of 205 adolescent ladies who were going on to play sport. Nine of them went on to get a, an ACL injury. So if you think about that, that's nine that did get it and 196 that didn't. So the odds are nine to 196 about getting an injury and that turns out to be about 4.5%, something like that. With hamstring injuries in football, your research shows that we're something in the order of one guy will get a hamstring injury for every 10 that won't. So the odds are 10 to 1 or 1 chance in 11 and that's about 9%. So when you try and do something like predict who are the people who are going to go on and get these injuries later on, in Tim Hewitt's example he looked at uh, one of the measures of how much your knee moves during a drop jump landing and he showed that you were about three times more likely if your knee did a certain thing during that landing. So your 9 went up to about 26, you still have 196 who wouldn't get injured. So that shifts your odds, uh, your percentage risk from about 4.5% up to a bit less than 12%. Your research looked at hamstring stuff and you found for one of your strength ratios you had about 1.5 times more risk if one of your strength ratios was in the wrong direction. So your original 1 to 10 goes up to 1.5 to 10. So to make the maths easy, we'll turn that into 3 to 20. 3 out of 23 is about 13%. So your 9% went up to 13% for your 1.5 times odds ratio yeah that's i mean when we did that study i got really excited about those uh, those results in in our statistics but as a clinician going from 11 to 13 or 14 percent doesn't really get me excited so if we think about these odds and then screening risk trying to predict who gets injured are all these tests rubbish like chad cook and eric hedges would say well, those guys certainly made us reappraise the way that we interpret all of our tests in the clinical setting, and I think that's a really good example. So instead of it saying, well, look, this test is positive, this person definitely has whatever, it's about time we started to embrace this uncertainty and try and quantify it. So the example that you gave, you know, you had a statistically significant finding and all the rest of it, 50% more risk, uh, one and a half times odds ratio, and yet going from 9% up to 13%, still says you're 87% chance you're not going to get injured. You're going to be wrong 87% of the time if you tell that bloke with the bad um, strength result that he's going to get an injury. And that's where I think um, some of the stuff that those guys have done has been a little bit misinterpreted by the clinicians. I don't think they're saying these tests are rubbish. I think they're saying they don't say exactly what we think they do. It's about time for us to look at these pre- and post-test odds and then look at our clinicians in light of that.
Miladin Jovanovic just wrote a piece for the Aspetar Journal looking at these heuristics and uncertainty. Uh, do, do we try to simplify this too much? Should we, should we look at it differently? Yeah, Miladin's paper is gold and it's freely available online, open access and all the rest of it, like all the Aspetar Journal stuff. And it really is um, shaking the tree of a lot of uh, the stuff that's been done around prediction and heuristics. And if you're into that sort of caper, I'd really recommend you go and have a look at that one. Right, so to explain those two examples, you use the base rate. But, I mean, as a clinician, if I do a test and it's positive, I usually assume that that's, that's an indication that the pathology is present. So for our ACL guys, if I do a pivot shift test, that means they've got an ACL tear, right, if it's positive. Yeah, that's a nice example, and that's um, one of the ones where I think uh, the research we talked about before has uh, got some stuff to teach us. So typically what people will do is say, I did the such and such test and it's a really good test and it was positive, therefore this guy must have the pathology. But you've got to take that base rate into account. So two people with a, you gave the example of a pivot shift test, um, we know that the positive likelihood ratio for that when it's, when you find it in a patient is something like 8 or 10. But if you take two different patients, one of whom tells you he's been playing football every day of his life for the last five years, his knee never collapses from underneath him and he's never had any swelling, I reckon both of us agree that this guy is pretty unlikely to have um, a ruptured ACL. Somebody else, on the other hand, who tells you that yesterday they went to try and pivot, their knee collapsed from underneath them and it swelled up immediately and you do a pivot shift on them, you're going to be much more confident that that positive pivot shift is associated with uh, a ruptured ACL. So there we've got to think about our base rates. If we know nothing else about the guy, well then we just go out into the population and we say, you know, maybe one in a hundred people, uh, as a conservative estimate, have a ruptured ACL and they don't know about it. Positive pivot shift, that means that one in a hundred becomes 10 to another 99, or you're still only about 10% chance of it being a positive ACL. Your guy who just sidestepped and his knee collapsed from underneath him, I don't know, guessing at that, I reckon you're more than 90% chance that that guy ruptured his ACL. So nine chances out of 10, you're saying positive test. Now your nine becomes 90 to one. So you know only one chance in about 91 that the guy hasn't ruptured his ACL. So those pre-test odds, which either you get from prevalence history or somewhere else, really influence how you interpret your findings of your clinical tests and that's what expert clinicians do all the day bring all of this information together and end up with um, some post-test odds they might not put the numbers to it but intuitively that's what they're doing so that makes sense post-injury and doing our assessments um, but what about in our healthy population and specifically thinking about identifying risk the IOC World Conference on Prevention of Injury and Illness in Sport is back in Monaco this year and a big focus is of course, how do we identify risk can we prev- and how do we do effective prevention? So if we can't predict these, do we just forget about screening altogether? It's not good enough, we can just throw it out? Yeah, look again, and I think that's another big misunderstanding. So if your only aim was to be able to tell Joe Bloggs in front of you that he is or isn't going to get injured and you had no other um, things you were trying to do, then yeah, you would have to chuck out screening because none of our tests are good enough to do that at the moment. But what you can do when you get big populations together and you identify these group level risk factors that you can then modify, then that allows us to target interventions to the entire population. So you're 100% right, I can't go to Joe and say you will get a hamstring injury, you will rupture your ACL, but you could say something for example like, you know, this kind of strength deficit 
is associated with a hamstring risk. So we're now going to get all of our football players to do this kind of strengthening intervention or whatever the case may be. But are there, so are there any benchmarks? So do I have like a specific number or, or something like that I could use when I'm, when I'm doing the screening test and when I'm looking at my team uh, to, to apply what we find? Well, that's the importance of doing these population-level studies and trying to find these associations and different values so you can see the guys who are higher or lower with any of these different measures that we take and see what the association of that is with subsequent injury. And it's really important research to be done. So at no stage am I saying chuck out screening as something that's not useful for do, to do in injury prevention. What I think is an important message to get across, though, is that if you're doing a test and you tell somebody that they are or aren't going to get injured on the basis of that, you're going to make a monkey of yourself in open court pretty quickly. Last year, there was a big uh, fuss around a World Health Organization report um, and almost gave up on eating bacon altogether. Um, do you remember that? Yeah, something along the lines of if you eat bacon or other processed meats of some sort that your lifetime risk of getting some kind of cancer or dying of some kind of cancer was elevated and everybody got really scared because it was nearly a 20% increase or something like that. But again, then looking at the baseline risk made, uh, made you maybe go back to having bacon with your eggs every morning because it shifted your lifetime risk from 5% up to 6%. So instead of being a 95% chance of not dying of that kind of cancer, whatever it was, you are now a 94% chance of not dying of that kind of cancer. Now for some kind of people, that sort of change in odds, change in risk, might actually be enough to change their dietary habits. But for me, I'm not giving up the delicious bacon just yet. So interpreting these odds or these results, um, even applied to the base rate, must still be done within a certain context. Yeah, for sure. Um, we need to think about what the outcomes of all of these things are. So something that's a very low risk, for example, but it has really nasty outcomes. You know, cancer is one we just talked about, but sudden cardiac death is another one. I think all of us would agree that we'd want to err on the conservative side there. But something that maybe is a pretty low risk, I don't know, getting some delayed onset muscle soreness after doing a certain kind of exercise... Probably most of us would be pretty happy with putting up with that kind of risk if there was a positive outcome at the other end of it. So it's not just that absolute risk, you know, however many percent chance that is of that happening. You need to weigh up what is the actual thing that um, is the risky event we're talking about here. So in my football team again, um, let's say we have two players who have the same, with the same test we're positive for. The one we just signed for a bunch of money and we think he's one of the star players of the future and the other one's about to retire. So we wouldn't look at those two the same, would we? Yeah, there's a great example. So the same absolute risk, you know, maybe you'd say these guys are, I don't know, a 50% chance of getting some injury on some given day given all the this magic information we just had. That young guy playing in a preseason intramural friendly I think everyone would agree we'd be likely to err on the conservative side and say, mate, today's not the day for you to go out and play. Whereas the guy playing in his swan song, and if he has a blinder, wins the game, he might sign another year's contract. I think all of us would tolerate a, at least a 50% chance of the guy getting uh, injured and maybe even higher if the coach was on board as well. So is predicting the same as forecasting then? Um, if we think about the weather forecast and there's an 80% chance of rain that by implication means there's a 20% chance it doesn't rain. 
So to really test that prediction of sorts, we should run that experiment 10 times and see if it's correct. But of course, we can't do that. Tomorrow only happens tomorrow. Yeah, that's a great example. And, you know, coming back to our ACL injuries, we can't, for any given individual, you know, one of those ladies in Tim Hewitt's study, she only gets to run that season once and she either gets an ACL injury or she doesn't. We can't run her through that 10 times and average it and do all the rest of it. We also need to embrace this kind of uncertainty and just realise that when you roll the dice, you know, it has a chance of coming up in one direction at any stage. Your hamstring example, if we, uh, if we take it and say, let's even double the percentage from 13% we ended up with, maybe you get all the way up to 30%, you say, well, no one's going to get injured there. But as, um, as my Twitter feed reminds me on a daily basis, Donald Trump had a 30% chance of winning the US election the day before it happened. So... Sometimes the dice comes up snake eyes. So um, let's take a recent example, though. I mean, you, you wrote a f paper with Phil Jacobson looking at predicting return to play based on um, clinical outcome measures. Um, and that seemed to get it really, really close to perfect. And I think in the 90% of the variance explained, uh, didn't you get it right then? Well, that one, and I think I'd point to Maladin's paper here and... Uh, to our defence, you know, we did say in the discussion that we'd certainly overfit our data and we need to go and confirm that with a subsequent study. So while, yeah, we did explain 95% of the variance and we ended up being able to say that we could predict with plus or minus five days how long a guy was going to come back after an injury, you need to know that we were going around and cherry-picking all of the data that ended up explaining more variance. To truly do this properly, you need to then run another experiment where all those other ones that didn't get in, we ignore them, we just keep the ones that are in, and I absolutely guarantee you the next time we do that experiment, of which we're now two-thirds the way through, we're not going to explain as much of the variance and we're not going to be as good at predicting as we were first time around. Unfortunately, those kind of confirmatory studies um, aren't terribly sexy and don't get published all that often. So, so perhaps, again, we need to shift towards being comfortable with that uncertainty. I mean, you guys still had a 10-day window in elite football. That's, that's maybe a window that a lot of coaches don't feel comfortable with. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if we just used MRI, for example, we had to say we were about plus or minus 30 days and you'd get sacked for sure if you were telling coach, well, he could be back tomorrow, he could be back in 60 days. Even as we did it, we said... Um, we could get it down to saying the guy's 25 days, maybe as soon as 20 or as long as 30, but still that might not be accurate enough for the coach who needs to be able to decide and plan his team uh, a couple of weeks in advance. So as a practitioner who treats these injuries every day, how do we factor these into our assessment odds or likelihood ratios or percentages? And does it really matter? Yeah, I really reckon it does. So you need to get comfortable with the idea if you're trying to figure out the percentage chance. Percentage chances are the things that most of us are probably a bit more comfortable um, understanding. We, we know that a 50% chance is like a coin toss, a 90% chance is close to a sure thing. But then when you some new information comes in, uh, you find out something out of the patient's history, you do some test, there's some screening information available, whatever the case may be, and you want to interpret that in, in light of their pre-test percentage risk, you've got to get comfortable with using odds. And so you've got to learn that, um, for example, one chance in four is the same as three to one is the same as 25%. And if you double that one chance in four, that becomes two chances in five, and that's 40%.
and I think that's a great place for us all to to start interpreting these better and and perhaps also conveying this to our patients better. Thank you for joining us on this BJSM podcast. You can find us on Twitter at BJSM underscore BMJ and Facebook. We're also in Google Hangouts or get the BJSM app available on Android and iOS. We look forward to your comments and feedback. Have a physically active day.